0: Hey guys, before we get into the episode, I just want to say thank you to everyone on Patreon. I know things are crazy in this world right now, and people are losing their their jobs and stuff, and just really value everyone who's been able to stick with us on Patreon. I know there's a few of you who had to drop out, and listen, I get it, I get it. There's no sense throwing money at a podcast when, you know, you need the money for your family. So again, I'm totally understanding if if you got to drop out, but if you don't, you know, and you're still with us there on Patreon, which a good... Good 30 of you are Or so Uh, I just want to say I appreciate it And we will continue To bring you The Mark Striegel episode Mark Striegel podcast episode Every Friday On Patreon That's Patreon.com Slash Talking Metal I Do that page With Victor Ruiz Who has his own podcast And Victor's podcast Is called Mars Attacks And by the way There's a new episode Of Talking Rock Out with me And Joey Haney Which you can hear On TalkingRock.net Uh, That's my website, talkingrock.net. It's all about Rush today, guys. Let's do this. Hi, I'm Mark Striegel, host and producer of this show since 2005. On this episode, we're going to talk some rock, some metal, and anything else we feel like. We're also going to jam some tunes, have a drink, and share some honest opinions. Thanks for listening to the Talking Metal Podcast. Let's get things started. Here's an old classic that sounds just as good today as it did when we were kids. By Rush, Uh, when Rush put out that second record, "Fly By Night," I think within 15 seconds of that first song there off the the second Rush album, we knew that things were different. Neil Peart was in the band, and it was definitely going somewhere a little different than it did on that first record. And you can hear that immediately when that intense opening. It's like a ice pick in the forehead opening so freaking good we're going to talk with martin popoff metal historian if you will about rush about his new books about rush one of which i have read it's called anthem it's a great read what better time than now to read a book right guys so so let's let's do this an interview with martin popoff here on talking metal Hey, it's Mark Striegel of Talking Metal and a guy we've had on the podcast numerous times over our almost 15-year career as a, as a podcast here and a guy I always look forward to talking to, Martin Popoff. Martin, how are you, man? Hey, I'm doing okay, Mark. Thanks for having me again. It's very cool. You bet, man. And man, what a time to give you a little press and and promotion here because we're all kind of held up in our houses here and man... Your books are a great thing to get us through through these times, uh, this COVID nineteen quarantine times, because you had so many good ones through the years that I've I've read and just completely psyched because a few months back, actually before Neil Neil passed, I got this great book in the mail, Anthem, Rush in the 1970s. And this is Just an awesome read. It's my favorite era of Rush is the 1970s. And just love all the stories that are coming from this book. And it turns out, correct me if I'm wrong, Martin, but this is just the first of three books, right?
1: Yes, so we've got that one. I think that title is uh, is a little it, it got changed a bit. It's just Anthem Rush in the '70s. Hopefully, I mean that is what it's going to be. But, okay. Uh, so it's we've got that one. Then we've got Limelight Rush in the '80s, and then we've got Driven Rush in the '90s. And in in quotation marks, in the end, as per the song, right? So it goes right up to the end. So yeah, it's a trilogy of books. Uh, this one comes out. I think next week. And uh, the next one is October. And then the next one is spring of uh, 2021. Although it could be a completely different world uh, even by right. October. Who knows, right? Um, but yeah, that, that's the plan. They've all been written, finished for well over a year, maybe even two years uh, in, in some cases, uh, like with the first one. But yeah, it, it just feels like it's been a long time. But they go through a long editing process and stuff. This is a this is a big, good, um, you know, traditional publisher here in Toronto. They're the uh, company that did my first Rush book uh, way back in 2003, Contents Under Pressure. That was the authorized one. They've done all of Neil Peart's books. Um, you know, I mean, his latest, you know, the last ones that he ever did, not his, right. not his earlier self-published ones, but yeah, big music book publisher and all sorts of uh, books publisher. And they're oddly their Their uh, office is literally like a 15 minute walk from my office, which is really cool. It makes it really convenient.
0: <laughs> right on, right on. And now you worked on one of my favorite music documentaries. You've actually worked on a, a, a few of them, which we'll talk about maybe later in the, in the interview. But I'm talking about Beyond the Lighted Stage, the uh, documentary that Banger Films did. You were involved with that. And from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, but these books kind of spun out of that documentary in a way.
1: Yes, definitely. So so I worked on that. I was full time there. I was like a research guy and a little bit on the story thing, but you know, finding all sorts of cool stuff to put in and whatnot and transcribing interviews, doing a lot of that. So I had a lot of that in my computer. And then just one day, um, just out of the blue, I was just thinking, eh, what's my next project going to be? And I, I thought I'd approach those guys. It was years later. And I said, hey, you know, if we if we paid you a few bucks, could we could we use the you know, all this great interview footage that doesn't go in the movie? Because what happens in a movie is essentially they have this kind of rule of thumb where where like you will film an hour's worth of stuff and use a minute of it. And so we had tons and tons and tons of stuff that we never used. And I thought this stuff's got to get seen. And I feel that way with a lot of lot of docs that I've I've been part of over there. Right. Right. There's just all this great footage locked up there. So they were fine with that. And we, and we checked with the office and the Rush office was fine with that. Everything's cool. And so we got their blessing. Um. So. So, yeah, that, that was the only way I felt like I could ever do another Rush book. I never had any plans to because I did that first one, which was the authorized one. But it was a little thin. It was only like. A 60,000 word book. Then I did Rush the Illustrated History for Voyager. And in that one, I vowed not to overlap with the first one. So I used sort of outside, uh, um, outside press and interviews that I had after the first book. And then we did Rush Album by Album. I did that series of those five books. And that's just getting a bunch of experts together and talking about each studio album. So that didn't overlap. And so for this one, I thought, OK, this is going to be the big enchilada. You know, I'm going to use everything I've got because it's with the same publisher as the original one, so I can use all that again, Um, plus all this great extra footage, plus other interviews I've had with the band, plus outside press and then the last thing I wanted to do is I was inspired a little bit by these um, the, this clash in this Led Zeppelin book I did all the albums all the songs where it's just like straight monastic 400 to 500 right. words straight analysis by me on every single song and I thought okay I'm gonna I'm gonna throw in more of my opinion and more of my analysis into it as well so we just threw all this stuff at it and the original plan was we were gonna do just one book and then we just had enough for th- three books
0: right right well let's let's talk about the book that that i read anthem you said anthem in what what is rush the rush in the 70s on that rush, cover, in, the it says rush in the 1970s we oh discuss. okay so just rush in the 70s i, I got it yeah because i have an advanced copy i guess but uh yeah the the one the one thing at the beginning of the book that that really struck me and you know, I, I guess I'd heard this. Maybe it was mentioned in the movie, but I, I never really thought about it and and felt it as as heavy as I did from from the book. Was 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 Getty Lee's father uh, a Holocaust survivor? That that really dies young. I mean, when when Getty's quite young, he he dies possibly because of injuries he's that he took on yeah. during the hol- Holocaust.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and and uh, and Mum was a Holocaust survivor too, right? So Yeah. Uh, and, and that's how they met, right? I think they met in the second camp or something. It yeah. was quite a quite a story. Um and then yeah, Getty was twelve, and yeah, I guess his his father kind of never got over the injuries that he had from being in a camp. So Getty was the man of the house pretty quick, right? Yeah. Um you know, his which his really brother, forms
0: who he is, at least that's what I take from the book.
1: Yeah. And he was really responsible right away. Um, You know, and he was always conflicted about quitting school and being a rock star. Right. And and not going to college and stuff like that. I think that's I think that's another reason he became such a renaissance man and a learned man. You know, he's so into books. Well, he's into reading, but he's into even collecting books. Right. Yeah. But he's into so many different things. He's a wine expert and all that, as we know. Right. And, he's you know, healthy guy, does a lot of sports. So does Alex. Um, So I I think a lot of that may him pretty responsible right away. And, you know, and then there's this narrative always, you know, that I don't know if I fully ascribe to, but this thing about Canadians being just sensible, solid, salt of the earth people and all this, right? You know, he's growing up in the suburbs and Alex, I mean, there's basically not a lot of scandal with Rush. So I think that that feeds into it as well. We know they're, they're, you know, they're, they're polite. You know, kind of conservative dudes, right? So um, so yeah, they they um they basically came up and and were pretty pretty organized and solid about what they did, as was Neil, right. I mean, Neil, Neil obviously is the same way. He's the professor, right?
0: <laughs> right, right, right. And you know, you mentioned Neil, but there there was another drummer before Neil that we don't really think about that much, at least I don't when I think of rush, I think of you know, yeah. Getty, Alex Neil, but 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 John, Rutzi, I mean, he was, he truly was the leader of the band. At least that's what I'm taking from the book.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say so much leader of the band, but he was probably, number one, he was the, he was the biggest partier. He was kind of a rock star dude. He drank and stuff yet, yet he had diabetes. So he had always, you know, these health problems and stuff. Um, But um, I wouldn't say per se leader of the band, but he was kind of like the, he was, he was almost like I don't know if he was even the feared guy in the band, but he's a little bit like uh, it's it's a little bit like the ace really of the band and even the Paul Deano in the band. So Paul Deano was a little bit the ruffian and and maybe a little bit kind of like feared. Oh, what's he going to do next? And I almost get that feeling with John Rutzi. But we do get that impression when we see that really awesome lost footage of that uh, playing in that high school that he was. He was the spokesman on stage in the band, which is quite bizarre, right? He's the guy. He's the guy announcing the songs and and giving the little "Hey, how you doing?" Everybody out yeah. there, right? Which is pretty wild. You see that in the footage that uh, that you get in the in the film. That that story of finding that is pretty interesting. They, uh, you, you know, what I'm talking about, right? This. Uh, uh, yeah,
0: with, I haven't seen the film in a number of years, but I do have a, a recollection of what you're yeah, talking and, about. Yeah,
1: and then they put more of it on the DVD extras. But essentially, what was found we found was a long lost uh, full concert professionally shot in a high school. Uh, The only moving footage of John video footage of John. So it was the original band, um, playing like six or seven songs, half of them that are not on any album. Um, and this is, I think fly by night is on there way before fly by night comes out. I think one one of the songs anyways, but, um, so, so that was a funny story. I mean, um, I wasn't there at the time on this particular trip to the office, but we went to the Anthem offices and, um, And, uh, they were just rummaging through a bunch of stuff and they found, I think it was a VHS or one of those older formats with a little yellow sticky on it that says, what the F is this? And that's it. Right. (laughs) Uh, It's not marked in any way. And they took it away and played it. And it was like, it was like the, you know, it was this thing that we knew existed that I had been looking for all this time. I, I had, you know, through my research found that, you know, this footage, uh, it was really bizarre. Like there was this big TV station in in this small town in Ontario, Kitchener, and the TV station bought the old brick house next door and and just took all the footage that they ever filmed of anything and just hucked it into this room in this old house. And then the house burned down, or everything was thrown out from it, or whatever. Wow. So so there was all this like, oh my god, we we hear this exists because we saw black and white pictures of of this this. High school concert with big, massive, uh, you know, proper video cameras, and thought, "Oh man, if we could only find that!" And then, so lo and behold, it was sitting in the Rush office, you know, all, all the time with a little yellow sticky on it.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's it's interesting how early on in the picture too, Terry Brown comes comes into the uh, the equation as as the Rush producer yeah. who would be with them just like for how long? I mean, just for decades, literally, right?
1: well right right through uh not decades but um, right from he helps patch up the first album and then he's he's there for every single in the 70s all the way through to Signals okay all right. Uh, so so 1980 yeah like he's there for Permanent Waves 80
0: uh, 80 okay like, so he uh, didn't do Grace 80, under Pressure then
1: uh right he's okay. he's that's the first one he doesn't do so he's right. all the way there right up until Signals
0: and there's this speaking of the first record there's this this story that uh that's in the book. And I just wanted to clarify this. so so John wrote like like Neil would in in the years to come, wrote lyrics. and they go in to record, and I guess it was right before they start recording the the first album. John suddenly loses the lyric sheets or decides he doesn't want his lyrics used, and they basically write the lyrics just on the fly for the for the first record. Getty ends up writing them.
1: Yeah, it's like I think John tore them up or something. Or, yeah, right?
0: that's what it says, it, it says in the book. Said yeah, he
1: was he was pretty. Um, he was a temperamental guy, so they were always a little. And he would ostracize people. That's the that's the word that Alex Alex used in there, right? So he would he would be into these sort of petty friendship games, I guess, you know, you'd be ostracized or whatever. So yeah, that really ticked the guys off. So they always knew he was a little bit of an unpredictable guy. It's a little bit like the Steven Tyler stories that you you remind me of. Like, like don't we hear stories of him having all the lyrics ready to go for the album? Then he loses the notebook or whatever, leaves it on top of a car in a restaurant or something.
0: (laughs) And it said, uh, it said in the book, you know, John, I think it was Alex or maybe it was Getty john regretted that they didn't use his lyrics you know for for years to come i'm sure because that was been a financial uh right. gain for him yeah. but yeah. so terry brown in in the in the picture early helping i guess remix certain songs re-record some parts and then they record i guess three new songs with him that first record comes out and it really catches on in the city of Cleveland. I guess Working Man is getting played on WMMS. And I I found that to be interesting. It seemed like Cleveland was a really important town for Rush in in breaking them, at least in the States.
1: Yeah, it was, as was uh, Pittsburgh and St. Louis. I mean, Casey and St. Louis was a big deal as well. Um, You know, so they were they were um, you know, it's it's a little bit funny. I, I have my own podcast and I, I'm, I'm remembering back now the very first episode I did was Led Zeppelin in hair metal. Right. And, right. you know, talked about things like Kingdom Come. And so it's it's funny that. they probably got a little bit of a leg up simply for a couple of novelty factors. Number one, there is the obvious story that, you know, everybody thought this was the new Led Zeppelin or at least sounded very much like Led Zeppelin. So there was that comparison. But then Getty's voice also is kind of a novelty voice. I never thought he sounded like Robert Plant, but it definitely is a novelty voice. So it's it's one of these things that people will talk about for good or worse. But they say, you know, no publicity is bad publicity. Right. Uh, or or bad even bad publicity is okay publicity right. whatever right. right so so there was a lot to talk about when you get an album like that i mean it was also quite well recorded quite accomplished uncommonly heavy for the day i mean there really wasn't much uh, american heavy metal i also did two episodes on my podcast about the origins of uk metal versus american metal and american metal was still pretty backwards and and boogie based right we came up with you know we, they had they had the big MC5 and Stooges thing going, but then it was like Cactus and Mountain and it was still like post-British blues boom stuff, right? But by 74... I mean, Aerosmith is just getting going. Blue Easter Cult is just getting going. Kiss's first album is 74. There's that great, great Montrose album, of course. That's a that's probably the best first heavy metal album out of America. But you know, this rush album is is pretty darn heavy and well put together and and cool and exciting. So it's it's no wonder
0: that I think it caught on. There just really wasn't anything like it at the time. Right on, right on. And and was there? Was there a gap, uh, you know, for these bands like like Rush and Aerosmith to kind of come in? I mean, Deep Purple was basically falling apart at that point. I mean, Ian Gillen was gone. They they were going a different direction. There were some Zeppelin even, you know, I mean, we all now look back at physical graffiti as 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 a masterpiece, which it was. But there was something that that wasn't quite as commercial about that record as there had been the earlier Zeppelin records. Was there an opening for newer bands to come in at that time?
1: Yeah, there, there is kind of that theory. I mean, it's more of a, you know, 75 to 79 thing with, right. um, cause I just did an episode on this, on my, my history and five songs podcast thing where, where it was, I did the late seventies UK and the late seventies us, just like I did the early seventies. There's, there's four kind of episodes that that tell this story, but, but yeah, so you had Led Zeppelin, um, going away in 79, but being patchy already and and being considered a little bit stodgy, even, you know, post, you know, physical graffiti is awesome, but presence got some bad reviews, and in through the outdoor was not heavy enough, and all this, right? But right. Deep Purple's completely gone, and they're all off doing their fusion bands Pace Ashton Lord, John Lord, solo Roger Glover, solo uh, the Ian Gillen band, right? Before right he was right. a heavy band, uh, yeah. so Rainbow starting up yeah. and Black Sabbath falling apart. You know, t- Technical Ecstasy didn't get good reviews, um, Your Eye Heap is kind of going away, they lose David Byron at that point, right? So, all the big early bands are kind of going away. And yeah, Into the Wake steps Kiss, Aerosmith, Ted Nugent, Blois Chicult, Heart Journey, Boston, Rush. Um, you know, a couple smaller bands, uh, Moxie from from Canada, Triumph from Canada, uh, what else? Derringer. Yeah. Uh, was- one stars angel um so yeah there was this uh, I, I you know it, it is considered a bit of a golden era of of american hard rock uh, but that really doesn't really you, you know they don't get the payoff really until about 76 which coincidentally is when rush breaks big with 2112 right. they, yeah. they have first
0: gold album. Right. Yeah. I do want to talk about 2112, which is a really important record for me. One of my favorite albums, but real quick kiss, you mentioned kiss and you know, a lot of times when we hear about bands touring together, there's friction, you know, between the two bands, but, but kiss and rush seem to get along so great. I mean, musically different, bands different musically for sure but in some ways i mean i loved both bands as as a kid so i mean i think there was a big crossover audience but but these guys really liked each other
1: yeah there's a couple things there i've never thought about this and that's a really cool question you ask i mean um you know first of all russia likable guys they're not going to do anything to tick off The kiss guys right i mean they're just likable dudes right um and also they're they're really studious in what they're doing so even though so here's the other thing so so rush is no is kind of like no threat to kiss in a way because kiss can just blow everybody away with their stage show and stuff and these songs that are really well written and direct and and simple to understand so they recognize that Rush is doing a totally different thing and, uh, and they're probably even going to get a little ridiculed and given a hard time before uh kiss goes on. So they're probably even getting a little sympathy from the guys, but at, on the same token, you know, the kiss guys were pretty, um, you know, pretty, pretty serious about what they were doing from a, from a musical perspective. Uh, You know, idea. They were music. They were big music fans, put it that way. So they could probably respect Rush as well, how good they were as musicians. And yeah, they just got along. They were doing different things. And this was the era of, um, you know, a lot of three band builds, a lot of, you know, the sandwich band in the middle, all these bands that we just talked about, all toured together. And it was also the era when it wasn't so organized that you had Uh, strictly a certain backup band for a long, long time, like a single tour start to finish. There was a lot of just jumping on wherever you happened to be. And then also there was a lot of filling in the gaps between the big shows at the hockey barn. You would just go play the local theater or the local club on the way if you had a day off or whatever. Right. So, so all these bands worked super hard and, you know, sometimes they were good for two albums a year. Um, and, um, and yeah, it was just this, this, you know, Getty, Getty says it the best, you know, when he when he says it, I, I remember, you know, I think this might have been an in-person interview with him at one point or whatever. But, you know, he said just that life takes takes a chunk out of your soul. Right. right. You hear about like the thousand yard stare or whatever. Um, It's just it just really beats something out of you doing that. So I think all those guys that go through that crucible, um, you know, have a lot of respect for each other for fighting that war. Right.
0: Right on. Like when Rush opened for Shauna nah, which <laughs> you mentioned in the book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or show up and you know, the club owners thinks he's getting the folk guy, Tom Rush. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And we're talking with Martin Popoff about his book Anthem Rush in the seventies. Uh, great, great stuff. A must have, A must read for all Rush fans. And Martin, the book is available when again?
1: Uh pretty much uh I would say mid-April, okay. by the end of April. It's literally uh, you know, even with this virus going on. I mean, there are like I say, uh, you know, we were talking before, my my personal uh supply chain is has not been broken. My mailing house has stayed open. Miraculously, these books that I'm receiving from various places, the print shops have stayed open or or sometimes they've been printed overseas. But this is this is a big, thick hardcover. It's it's a read, it's not a photo photo book, like a lot of my other big rush books have been. So it's got photo sections, um, but it's, but it's like a, like a big substantial read sort of thing. But I, I am getting copies soon and I'll have them at my website, martinpopoff.com As I usually, you know, I always have a supply of everything I do. I, I ship them, sign them here, ship them out. There's there'll be PayPal buttons and all that stuff for them. But yeah. So, uh, you know, apparently even though there's no bookstores, you know, publishers have that problem, Right. Uh, but places like me that do a lot of mail order as part of their monthly deal. Um,
0: uh, I, I'm, I'm, you know, t- touch, wood, at least for now. Um, we're not closed down. Awesome. That's great news. And let's, uh, let's talk about again, that album, that just amazing record 2112. It was really from what I'm reading in the book, like it was a make or break record for them.
1: Yeah, so they had the, you know, the Down the Tube tours and the Down or down the Tubes tour on Caress of Steel and the album Caress of Steel, which was a step back. They had all the excitement with the debut. Fly by Night had a hit on it with Fly by Night. It was doing well. The band was on the up and up. And then things took a dive with Caress of Steel. It was considered to be just a little obscure and weird and a little bit like Getty says. We smoked a lot of pot making that record. Right. Uh, right. But then they decided, uh, well, okay, if we're going to crash in flames, we're going to go down our way. Way. This is this is where they really kind of gained their independence. They made essentially, you know, I don't think 2112 is that much different about al- an album from Cress of Steel. It's structured pretty much the same way. Um, but, you know, I guess the songs are a little better. The production's better. Cress of Steel was a little thin. I didn't have a lot of There's bottom. like
0: an anger. I feel like they're, they're like there's there's more of an oomph and, and almost an anger to 2112, at least. Yeah.
1: Yeah and and it's a little more majestic and yeah a little more confidence. I everything's just a little better. Caress of steel almost sounds like the demo version of 2112 I guess in in a little ways. But really uh 2112 to my mind is not that much more of a commercial record. It's it's just quite non-commercial as was caressive steel so so essentially they make this album and surprise it does well i mean Prague is big at this time uh this is a progressive metal band this is the band that invented progressive metal right i mean literally they took prog and they took metal and just jammed them together i mean it's it's a pretty clear formula and they're the only ones doing it nobody dares copy them right i mean i always think the, the closest things that you would consider close to this are Styx, uh, Kansas, uh, a little bit of Uriah Heap, maybe a little bit of King Crimson. But all of those are way different than Rush anyways. Yeah. right? But, you know, they got that. They got the, the matching toga look on the back and this big sci-fi story. And it's a gatefold and it's got the pentagram. So it's got a lot going for it. Hard Rock's a big deal at the time. Prague is a big deal at the time. Concept records are accepted. Radio stations would play a whole side or whatever, or a whole album. They didn't they didn't seem to mind. So, yeah, it just it just by sheer force of their will and by sheer force of doing something really unique, it went over and, uh, you know, it didn't go over huge. It it became a gold album. Right. But that was enough to, uh, you know, to keep their career going on the up and up
0: absolutely and i did want to ask you a few non rush questions but before before we do that um neil his his interviews that you did with him any memories you can share any personal thoughts you want to share about neil
1: yeah i mean neil the great thing about neil is that uh, it's, it's really funny like like one thing i just love about the way he 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 ran his life when it came to interviewing. So, okay. So there's always this big myth that Neil, Neil doesn't do interviews. Right. But if you go back, he did a ton of interviews all through the whole rush time. It's only later on after the tragedies that he, that he kind of withdrew in a big way. Right. But he was good in those early interviews. He would engage. He would not be patronizing. He would talk politics or whatever. And that seemed to bite him on the butt a couple of times. Like when he got, you know, when they started going in all this libertarian and ran stuff. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But um, but no, he was he was good. And then and then, yes, sure, he withdrew. But then he decided the funny thing is he decided that. Okay, yeah, I'm not going to do interviews, but I'm going to write these massive books that are going to be the ultimate Neil interviews that no one's going to have to ask me anything ever again because I'm just going to tell them everything in these books, and that's what he did with his life, right? But the the corollary to that is that when you did get an interview with him and and talk to him, he he would be great. He'd be a killer interview. He'd talk your ear off, just like he talked the bangers guys' ears off. He was right. He he talked about everything, and that's that's why this trilogy of books is going to have so much good rich stuff uh, when you get into the 80s and 90s as well, because there's lots and lots of Neil, right, that, that we haven't seen. But uh, but yeah, he, he was the same with me. It was just he was really engaging and uh, and, you know, would answer all my questions and stuff. You know, I, I knew that there's always with him you know, you got to know that that there's that thorny thing is that he doesn't want to be praised. And, okay. um, you know, and also he he had this thing that um he would quickly and easily get embarrassed by his old material and think the newer material's great. And oh my God, I hate the old stuff. I don't, you know, which is crazy because everybody loves the '70s Rush and the and the later stuff not so much, right? Um, but Neil would be probably the opposite. I mean, he he would he would praise to the hills the new stuff, but he'd be the one guy out of the three that would probably disown the early material the most.
0: That's interesting because I I do remember as a kid, like the first time I saw Rush was on the Grace Under Pressure tour. And I remember reading interviews with with them at that time. And there was this real thing with them where they they didn't want to be... associated with any of the hard rock bands. You know, they were, they wanted to be more associated with the police and they kept talking about the police and they don't, they don't listen to hard rock. They don't like hard rock. So, so that's, that's kind of interesting. That of course would have been in, in the eighties, mid eighties. Uh, were they really, do you remember them trying to really distance themselves from their roots at that time? Oh, for sure.
1: You know, I always, I always like fantasize dream that, oh, what if they went like your I heap and did your bomb and or budgie and did power supply or black Sabbath? Like what if they embraced the new wave of heavy metal instead of running away from it? Right. right. Because they were loved at that time. Right. And they were loved by the British, uh, you know, those, those albums. I mean, you think of permanent waves and, and moving pictures. I mean, they, they would have, could have been probably even more massive had they, had they gone heavier even. Right. Right. Um, and and just 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 been this big you know just duking it out with uh with Judas Priest and uh and uh who else Scorpions and Ozzy at the time right. but you know they they kind of ended up doing that anyways they kind of ended up being accepted despite going in this direction and being you know frankly quite trendy and doing a lot of things that don't stand the test of time because it because they were such curious guys that they that they were, um, you know, uh, technology adopters, early adopters, right? Mm -hmm. So they would, they would early adopt things when they weren't quite developed yet. So you'd have all these electronic drums all over things and thin, you know, wall bases and all these stuff that now is considered, you know, it it didn't stand the test of time so well. But the the other crazy thing is, um, you know, even though their album sales kind of Started to go down and plateaued. I mean, they there were still gold through all that '80s period, but they they had this this um, sort of interesting business philosophy where they never went backwards in terms of a live band, and they kept making the live show. This is where their love of technology paid off for them because they kept throwing money into the live show and being a high tech live show and doing a lot of video stuff and uh, and a lot of props and a lot of cool stuff. So they were. Um, Always playing the same huge venues as all those other big metal bands were playing all through the 80s, even though there was a pronounced difference in how well embraced their albums were.
0: Right. Right on. I wanted to also mention that I recently watched the documentary That Little Band from Texas about ZZ Top and saw your name on that one too, man, what a, what a great story that tells so, so much good stuff on such a great band, a band that I know you really, really love.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, that was so fun working on that. I'm, I'm in there as a story consultant and then I'm in the, in the credits also as a transcriber. So again, it's a situation where I've actually, you know, in my own home office that I'm sitting in now, I would get sent, you know, interviews to transcribe and thinking, all oh, this great stuff. So I don't know, maybe, maybe I'll check with those guys again at some point and say, let's, let me do a ZZ talk book or something. Right. But, uh, no, that was really cool coming up with that. Um, you know, working early on, on, on kind of the story end of it, you know, Ralph Chapman's a great writer. He's, he's the chief writer on the thing. And Sam, Sam Dunn, of course was super involved, but yeah, the funny thing was, uh, I recall fond memories of, of trying to figure out what the story should be, where we should take it to. Ralph had this idea that he wanted to sort of end it around the Viva Las Vegas period and tie right. it back to Dusty and his love of singing and love of Elvis and stuff. And then I, you know, I had one thing where I thought, why don't we make this about how this is the quintessential American band. They're like, they're like more American than, than Aerosmith even. Um, they're, they they they're not as, You know, uh, metaphorically American as Leonard Skinner, but the thing is, they're not polarizing like Leonard Skinner either. Everybody loves them. It's not an argument between the left and right with ZZ Top. They're just the most American band ever. So I thought that would be something to push as a storyline. And then I also, my my pet storyline, more than anything, would have been, you know, but but of course we we couldn't do this. It's not really practical. But I personally am one of the few people that thinks. This band's some of their greatest albums are the ones they made recently. Like I think Rhythmine is so heavy and I have this argument with people all the time. It's just this m- lost massive gem. It's practically my favorite ZZ Top album. I loved Mescalero like 96 or 97,
0: yeah. yeah. 97,
1: yeah. 97. Um and it might be 96, uh, but Antenna I loved as well. So I loved all those records, XXX not so much, and the last one not so much. But I loved everything else they did from Antenna on. Um, so that was a sto- I, a storyline where I thought this is one of the key bands that's making some of their best music now, even though nobody cares because it's just a heritage act and they're just love for the old hits. Right. But. Obviously, as you've seen from the movie, we had to sort of come up with this thing where okay, you can only say so much, you know, and there's been some complaints about it, right? That ending it essentially with Eliminator, the story yeah. of how Eliminator was. But, you know, you only have so much time. And and we learned that in the Rush movie. It was just
0: really 90 minutes, yeah.
1: Yeah, we're watching the Rush movie and 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 I remember that thing living as a four hour movie for months and months. Then it was a three hour movie for months and months. And then like right at the end, boom, down to 88 minutes. Right. So, so, you know, banger is so high quality in what they do and they're just agonizing over every second of what can we put in here. And we'd sit in meetings and we'd make notes and we'd say, I guess you could chop that a little bit there maybe or whatever. And then, you know, we'd have to move the editors would have to move things around, which is just a wild process. But yeah, I mean, they would just polish the, These things like a diamond to get it to be the perfect story. Right. And every fan, everybody at Banger is huge music fans. We would all love every movie to be four and a half hours long, but you just can't do it.
0: Right on. But you mentioned Rhythm Mean. I love that song. My mind is gone. It's such a one of my oh, favorite season yeah. pop songs. Absolutely. It's so stuff. I yeah. Uh, ACDC. Ahead. I had the the honor of being included in a book that you put together a number of years ago, ACDC, album by album. It's and really? uh, that was so much fun doing that book with you, talking to you about one of my favorite bands. What, what do you think the future for ACDC is? We're hearing maybe there's going to be this album that has leftover stuff that Will include stuff you know Malcolm had been working on before he passed away. Uh, do you think we're gonna get another album by ACDC? Another tour?
1: Man, I don't know if if it was up to me, if I was their manager or whatever, I would say you know for the sake of humankind. Uh, Prop Brian up in a chair and get him to sing another album. Forget about touring. Who cares? It would just be great to have one more great ACDC album. None of this Tom Brady going to the Buccaneers stuff. We don't we don't need right. one last ac ACDC album with axel singing or something right it's ridiculous right I mean it has to be Brian or no one don't even do it right um, so so I would just love to see one more album with Brian I mean if there was something with leftovers in that I would hate them to even even like make it like an album uh, like try to call it a, a last album. I just don't want to mess. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I thought I just, I'm so bummed out cause ACDC and ZZ top are probably my two favorite bands ever. You know, I've got, a, got a few others that I bring up obviously from time to time, but, but really when push comes to shove and I, I think of who has a ton of albums that I love, ACDC is one of the top two. And it just pains me so much that I hate rock and bust. Uh, rock or bust right and i love black ice you know so i wish they would have ended it on black ice uh, but but now I wish they would end it on a good album because I just I just something about almost every single song or rock Rocker Bust I don't like, hmm, and almost okay. every song on Black Ice I love. I thought that was a masterpiece, um, and I thought Rocker Bust was a disaster. And I hate that, right? I I don't want to see them end on a bad album. So I don't know, man. I I don't I don't see why you can't get uh, get Brian to dust off those pipes, and and all you got to do is is put together. 45 minutes well i don't know that's that's too short these days but right. so so 52 minutes of, of music yeah, i uh, you know like i say for for the sake of the happiness of millions and millions of people, like, give us one more good album.
0: Right on, right on. And Deep Purple, uh, I didn't think we were going to get another album from them, but we apparently are. Whoosh is coming out, and there was a single release. Just wondering if you heard the the new Deep Purple track, Throw My Bones. Hey, man,
1: uh, I'm, I'm, I'm way beyond you on that one. I've, yeah. I've- The whole thing for weeks. I've interviewed Ian Pace about it. I've interviewed Ian Gillen about it. So I know everything there is to know about that album. I I love it. I think it's great. It's a really cool record. Um, yeah, I had a great interview with Ian Gillen. Ian Pace is is great too. I talked to him about the last album. I mean, I just love that the drummer of the band is such a such an engaging, charming interview, right? But then I got one with Ian Gillen because the plan is we're gonna do a cover story for Goldmine and and you gotta, you know, it's gotta be a good long article. So I needed kind both of them. So I held out for Ian and I'm so glad I did because he's so good with the lyric stories and stuff like that. Right. Um, you know, you don't want to talk, you don't you don't want to get him talking about Bob Ezrin because he kind of gives you the same story that Ian Pace gives you and it's kind of general stuff, but, but he will gladly talk about the motivation behind the lyrics and stuff, which is so cool when he does that. But it's, it's another one of these Super creative albums with a lot of daring music on it. You know, a few songs that are kind of normal. Um, one thing I don't like is it's kind of got a similar arrangement throughout. It just feels like it's all kind of one tone. Like, like they've turned into this band where it's hard to explain. Like nothing sounds super heavy out of them anymore and nothing sounds super light out of them anymore. Like, Hmm. like it's just this arrangement where there's this massive rhythm section. The guitars are kind of like, it's really lush and well recorded, but it doesn't, it just doesn't sound at all raw or heavy. You know what I mean? It's kind of hard to explain, but, but it's really creative. And like Ian said, um, you know, and he was so right about this. He goes, "I'm astonished that this late in our career, guys our age, we could be so creative and so into it." Awesome. And you know, this is like six records, I think, with Steve Morse uh, from this era. And I love this era. I think Abandon's amazing. That's one that yeah. they don't think is amazing. It's almost my favorite one. Uh, Perpendicular. Everybody loves Perpendicular. So, um, I, I just think, uh, you know, out of all the bands that made their best music. Late in their career. It's Deep Purple, number one. And I thought, like I was saying, ZZ Top. I think Cheap Trick, Motorhead uh, are a couple that I I thought. Yeah, sure. Bunch of their great albums. Late. Your Eye Heap great, great albums late in their career now. Right. So, um, yeah, so yeah, sorry. I could, I could talk, talk your off about Deep
0: Purple. (laughs) Right Right on. Well, Martin, it's always great talking with you and hearing your opinions on things and reading your books like Anthem, Rush in the 70s, highly recommended, uh, great time to read a book guys. We're, we're going to be probably under quarantine here for oh god who knows how much longer what do you think martin is, is this is the 2020 concerts season over or will we get some in the late summer you think? it's pretty wild i mean i think
1: i think you're getting a little bit of this everybody's talking about the plateauing especially in europe and a little bit in the states but i think there's also people are getting real cabin fever and i think you're going to see people really trying to figure out ways to go back to work today the stock market went up 1200 points um so i don't know it's it's funny i mean to to think i i think everybody's thinking i can't do exactly this for even to the end of april let alone To the end of May, like people, all sorts of, you know, sensible people are saying at least till the end of May. And uh, and then a lot of other people like are, you know, ringing the doom bell that that you, you can't you can't put the economy in, into this much of an induced coma even another three weeks, let alone six weeks. Right. And then people are saying into the summer and then Dr. Fauci's saying, this is the new standard. And then everybody's saying it'll come back in a second wave. You know, we're going to get the warm weather, right. Not supposed to get rid of it, but then the weather gets cold again. And what happens? Oh man, it's, it's crazy.
0: Yeah. So Well, I mean, the I, thing we've learned through the years is that the pundits and all these people on TV generally can't predict the future because yeah. it's it just, they, the so much of Ends up being wrong. And having said that, I, I, I'm trying to stay optimistic. I, I really I, I don't expect to be at any shows in, in, in May or maybe no. even June, but I, I'm still got my fingers crossed for July.
1: Yeah. I mean, to me, to me, that's the last of our concerns. Like the big gathering of crowds is the last of our concerns. I think having all the factories running again is a heck of a lot more important, like like just stores open and stuff, right? Like, like, like most of the stores and most of the factories, you know, but, but to, to think about you know, I, I think cramming a bunch of people into a club to watch a show is probably the last thing, A, that's going to be allowed, right? And it, it, it just seems like antithetical to the social distancing the most. I think I think you really want to see, okay, can we figure out how to run the damn factory? I think that's yeah. the most
0: important thing. Good point. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. All right, Martin. Well, thank you so much. Please stay safe up there. You're in Toronto, right? Yep. 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 Yeah, it's about the same uh,
1: same level as uh, you know, everything locked down pretty severe as as pretty much anywhere else in the world except, you know, you keep hearing about various places in the states that haven't had it so bad yet, but Right. No, it's it's quite a quite a lockdown city, that's for sure.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, stay safe and again, your book anthem rush in the 70s and that'll be followed by Limelight. Yep. In what March September, 80. I think September twenty twenty. They're October-ish. saying for that yeah. October ish, and yeah. then Driven. It will be Driven, the third, yeah. the third book. Cool. Yeah. Well, I'm really enjoying Anthem and look forward to reading Limelight and Driven, uh, all on Rush by Martin Popoff. Thank you, sir.
1: Thanks, man. Thank you, and congrats on what you've done here. I mean, this is a this is a heck of an established podcast universe you've created it's it's pretty amazing you guys
0: <laughs> oh well thanks yeah we were one of the one of the first and yeah. uh 15 years later still still doing our thing sometimes yeah. i scratch my head as to why but uh, you know I, I love doing it so, yeah, so yeah. there Very you cool. go all right and, man
1: we'll talk to you later all, all right. right man take care okay.
0: see Bye. ya <laughs> Yyz here on Talking Metal. Big thanks to Martin for joining us, guys. Stay safe. Continue to wash your hands. Hopefully, we're we're over the hump now. I don't know what's going on. I, I just I want things to go back to normal. Rest in peace, Neil Peart.